0: Peace, peace, and welcome to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. So this week I have on uh, probably the most successful Black man to ever be born in San Francisco. Uh. <laughs> uh, Graduate of our public schools. Uh, leader and friend and uh, supporter of multiple important causes. We're going to get into some of, of his career. Uh, Mr. Eric McDonald also is an incredible singer. I don't know if we'll like <laughs> opportunity to hear any of that <laughs> today, but uh, this is an interesting time in the country. And I know he, through his uh, work in nonprofit and corporate America, has seen a lot and heard a lot and, and, and impacted a lot uh, throughout his career. So, I'm planning to learn a lot. I appreciate your time, Mr. McDonald. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate all the work you're doing, all your leadership, and yeah, love being in this space with you. We are like a week out of the presidential election. Mm. The transition, I guess, is happening, but like maybe it's not. You know, what's where you at right now with thinking about. Is Trump going to leave? Like what a Biden administration means? What are your general sentiments right now?
1: Right. Now, I appreciate that question. I've definitely been sitting with that for a minute. I guess I would say I am quietly um, optimistic and expecting, frankly, that he will leave. Now, the conditions around his leaving, I don't know. I don't know. He's spiraling right now and trying to figure out how to sustain both his prominence and, and to some degree, his legacy and, and not doing it well just my opinion. Um, and so, you know, as I reflect on it, we're in this really pivotal and critical time in our nation's history. I was, because I was curious also about, you know, what happens if he doesn't leave. So I, you know, peeked back in history. And to my knowledge, there's only one other time, and I believe it was Adams, but I'd have to just confirm that, but he just skipped. Dude just ghosted. He just said, I lost, I'm out, y'all figured out. And they did. Um, so I was like, okay, m- you know, maybe, maybe that could happen. Um, I think at some point me, I'm just uh, you know, overly optimistic that the, uh, you know, the Republican leadership will step up, um, and lead him out in some kind of gracious right departure, but we'll see, we'll see. It's an interesting
0: time. Yeah, we kind of launched right, right into politics, which I, which I don't usually do. Um, I guess we can kind of work our way backwards because for some of your career, uh, has been involved with like big, really large nonprofit organizations yeah. that um, are, you know, that have like a national presence. I don't know, maybe some international presence. Sure. sure. Uh, throughout your career, because I want to get into the specifics of your upbringing and your career, uh, what has, has, has whose president really affected your work at a national level? In
1: particular moments, especially in my work in the United Way Worldwide Network, where I spent almost 20 years, um, and we can, again, we can delve as deeply as you want to in the kind of career trajectory and path, but in that work, and most specifically, as we began to delve into the public policy agendas, right, that were about enabling and empowering communities and um, you know deconstruction of some of the policy, um, construction that existed, yeah, it mattered who the president was and is. Um, and so, you know, there, while while the, the the network did not engage in partisan politics, certainly paying attention paying attention to policy and advocating and really mobilizing the network, the the, the national network, you know, twelve hundred United Ways across the country, um, to ensure that you know there's you know, reauthorization of SNAP or, you know, ensuring that, you know, when Prop 8 was, was on the ballot, et cetera. So anyway, there've been a number of places where it has mattered
0: who the president um, has been. Absolutely. For my work, um, like the direct insertion hasn't been as connected or what, what I should say, like our ability to move outcomes for the black community Mm -hmm. has been difficult, no matter who the president is. When, when Obama ran, you know, you can tell me nothing. Like 2008, it was like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 2008. Right. like, it was like, it was like Christ arrived. I, that's like, that's really a, you know, my grandma would hate that I said that, but like, but I feel you. Yeah. I get your point. Yep. Yeah. I was like so caught up and I was like, I, but I was like 22 right out of college. I didn't really care who was president before, but every, it meant everything to me. And then over the course of this presidency, I was like, ah, you know, yeah. what's, what's happening. So like the most singular important person, I would say, in terms of like having an impact and inspiring me, like Barack was, but um, the impact of his presidency, I question. For, um, for me,
1: for me, part of it, just real quick, for me, part of it is, I mean, you know, I had some of the same kind of feelings of, wow, finally, right? This this is our moment. Um, you know, are we getting ready to turn stuff over and right, really redistribute both wealth and access and power and right, shift the whole dynamic? And you know, some of that was realized, a lot of it was not realized. And one of the things I gained a better appreciation for in those eight years was just how tough that is, right? How tough that job, no matter who it is, because. Um, you know, the kind of the stars just have to align right, right? Whether it's both in terms of who's rep- who's holding power in each of the branches of government and or what the political winds are at any given time and how you seize that in the moment with the right policy move, right? It's 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 a tough game.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and, and I had these, you know, hopeful aspirations that, you know, Obama would just turn it all upside down. And a reality, at least in my view, is that he couldn't. Um, and you know it was the pol- the political game my my opinion and you know better than I because you've been in it like in it in it um mm. where I've been you know holding it and pushing it mm. which is it's it's a game of compromise
2: mm.
1: and it's how you move agendas mm. um which means sometimes you push, hard. And other times you soften, you know, you accelerate and you slow down and, you know, and, and, uh, so it's tough. It's tough. It's
0: actually one of the reasons I've
1: never run a public
0: office. Yeah. You got so much insight too. I'm glad we are talking. I'm gonna learn more. I think <laughs> the course of course in this conversation, I want to talk about Kamala Yeah, because I, because I'm sure you've probably met her more than I have. I mean, I met her a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what, what's it like for you to see her? Do you remember first meeting your first time you met her? First time I met
1: her would have been in would have been 0809 okay. someone yeah would have been 0809 and um it was actually um the very first time was um actually hydra's first campaign running uh-huh. on school board uh uh-huh. um, yeah, your wife is hydra poor- mendoza who was my former yes. colleague on the board of Education. Yeah.
0: yeah thank <laughs> you continue
1: um, <laughs> yeah yeah um And so that was the very first time. And quite honestly, and I don't say that just because she is now where she is, what impressed me, one of the things, many things did, but one of the things that impressed me was her level of, and she and President-elect Biden hold this kind of characteristic and trait, which is a real sense of purpose and presence, right? Many, many folks in politics, quite candidly, are, are, are rarely actually not fully present, Mm-hmm. Right, they 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 they're physically present, but they're not really present. Um, and and when they are sort quasi present, they're present with an agenda, right? And what I experienced from her, and even the one time I met President Elect um, Biden, there is a sincere and genuine presence, um, and I think that's powerful in terms of leadership and leadership qualities. So that's what stood out for me. And and you know, then kind of watching and then having touch points along the path of her her career. Um, that a was always true. And then she sought to leverage that to, you know, um, live out her passions around, um, changing things in community, uh, for, you know, certainly black folks, but also people of color and women and girls. Um, and I, and, and I've, uh, uh it's been great to watch. Um, and like everybody else,
0: she's also been imperfect. So there it is <laughs> yeah, as, 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 as we all have been. And, yes. um, and I, I'll reserve my criticism over right now because I really want to talk about Eric McDonald and his, and his upbringing. So, like, you grew up in San Francisco? Yes, sir. Native San Franciscan. Born in San Francisco General Hospital. Okay. okay. Yes, sir. I was, I was Kaiser. Okay. Right. So, like, did you have siblings?
1: No, I am an only child, single okay. mom. Quick backstory. The reason that I am a native San Franciscan is because my my mother fled Macomb County, Mississippi when she was 15. Hmm. Said, I can't take it. I'm out. Came to San Francisco, you know, sat literally with a with a a distant cousin um, until she got on her feet. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. So um, it was me and my mom, me and moms um, from from day one. Grew up in the public housing in in, in the Fillmore, um, in King Garvey. And uh, yeah,
0: that was that was the path. Describe like the Fillmore growing up. Like, what was it?
1: Yeah. So so so. For me, it was kind of two big word, but not more than what I mean, kind of parallel or concurrent worlds in one. So on the one hand, because I'm living in public housing, um, I'm, I'm living what is not the dream of struggling to make ends meet. Um, I jokingly described how, you know, long before, you know, HBO had fight night, all I had to do was open the curtain, (laughs) you know, stuff, stuff was going down like all the time. I mean, to the extent that, you know, my mother, again, single mom trying to make sure her her son um, is safe and well. Dude, I had a hard time just getting out the door because she was like, No, you're not going. No, you're not hanging out. No, you're not. She was like all over me. And early on, enrolled me in, you know, basically it was the it was the nonprofit safety net in San Francisco that took care of me. It was mm-hmm. the child care center, Audrey L. Smith. It was the after school program at Hamilton um, Rec and Park, it's where I played basketball. And then it was um, Columbia Park Boys and Girls Club, 16th and Valencia, where I was required to go. Every day after school until she picked me up, so that that was the safety. So there was that part of the world where there was this insular kind of universe of families that lived in 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 our community where we were. Everyone knew everybody, you know, families the whole nine. And then just. Just outside of that, when you got down to Fillmore's, where you began to experience the commerce of Black folks and stores and Chicago barbershop and um, Miyako's ice cream, and right, we were we were rolling, and we had you know Boom Boom Room, and I was it wasn't old enough to go there, but I knew that was ours, right? I knew uh, right, right <laughs> how we I knew how we flowed, and it was mm. so so it was kind of that that. Sometimes dichotomy was very, very real, and then in the larger scheme of things, you know, watching the city evolve. So that whole property that is now um, the, the the Safeway and the the condominiums that was rubble. That was just ground. not There was no, not that there was something. There was nothing. Mm-hmm. That's actually where I learned to play football because mm-hmm. um, I had older cousins who lived down in Plaza East, mm-hmm. and so. They were like seven, eight years older than me. So, you know, they were big and strong and tough. And here I am, 11, 12 years old. I want to play with them. And they wouldn't let me. So one, you know, so they were playing football and they were playing football on gravel. So it wasn't even grass. It was gravel with rock and glass, all that kind of stuff. And so I'll never forget when I, you know, got my cred to be able to play with them. So they said, fine, you want to play with us? Go out for a pass. So they, you know, literally say, go deep. So, so I go deep. He throws it. I, I stretch out, catch it, and then I roll. I hit the ground, roll, arm gets all cut up. Mm-hmm. I'm, t- I'm going to be honest with you, and I, now they're going to find out. I was ready to cry, but I knew if I cried, they weren't going to let me play no more. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. So I just sucked it up, got back mm-hmm. up, said, yeah, and from then on, they let me play. So so there was nothing there. And so to watch that evolve,
2: uh-huh. I
1: also watched, it was also when I got exposed to the, um, the roles of, Um, Mary Rogers and Tamatra Scott, um, Mm. many of the other Black leaders in the community who were the stand in front of the bulldozer, you're not going to build nothing here kind of folk, Mm. Um, which on the one hand inspired me, but I'll be honest, on the other hand, I also watched how the system marginalized them over time, Mm -hmm. right? Because they would be the ones who would walk in and stop a, a board of supervisors meeting, just like shut it down. And so, but what happened was what I watched over time. So by the, by this time, I'm 16, 17, starting to pay a little closer attention. And I see how they let them come in, do their thing, and then say, thank you very much, and then continue to bolt the bulldozer, right, and still build the property. And right, so that was my, for me, that was about, okay, that, that particular strategy, not that it doesn't work, there has to be more. And so for me, that became a question of, What's the inside game and what's the outside game and that we need them both.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for for me, part of the reason I went the path I went um, was because I I really saw the need for the inside outside game, that the outside game wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. It wasn't enough to agitate. It was necessary, but it wasn't enough. And so that really birthed my path. Last thing I'll say and then I'll, I'll give it back to you is what early on what started kind of my career was literally one conversation and it wasn't even with adults it was with kids so i'm 17 years old i'm working after school in this after school program of the child development center i attended right as a as as, as a as a young child my mother had joined the board Mm-hmm. And one day she came and said, hey, hey, they're hiring. Do you want to work? I said, yeah, not really because I wanted the job itself, but they were giving me a paycheck. So I was like, OK, yeah, I got a paycheck. That's cool. So I was doing, you know, the, you know what you would expect in after school program, a little bit of recreation, a little bit of tutorial, that kind of thing. And I would regularly engage them in, you know, or periodically, I should say, in just life conversations. Right. So one day I get them in a circle and it's about 10 to 12 of them in a circle and their age range from seven to 12, 13 years old, right? Nice range. Mm -hmm. What do you want to be when you grow up going around the circle I want to be an actress? I want to be a doctor. I want to be a football player. And then I got to one young brother and he said, I want to be a pimp just like my uncle. Mm. Right. And I got the giggles around the circle. And I said, hold on, hold on. I said, dude, talk to me. Why do you want to be a pimp just like your uncle? Now, I, I, I knew even before he said it, he was parroting what he saw. Who in his world was living large? His uncle. And his uncle happened to be a pimp, right? And so he said, they make lots of money, they drive bad cars, and they get all the girls. Like, he was 10 years old. And so I said, OK, I hear you. I wasn't going to diss his uncle. I said, let's talk about some, some positive ways, dude. You can make a money drive a nice car and find maybe a nice girl, right? Mm -hmm. That becomes your life partner. Mm -hmm. And right then and there, if you had asked me before that conversation, what I wanted to do in life, actually would have said, I want to be an architect. I'd gotten introduced to, um, you know, mechanical drawing. I had my drawing board, my T square, my protractors and I was kind of headed down that path. I had some, some mentors and and teachers who were guiding me. And right then and there, I decided this is what I want to do. He became my project. I want to expose you to a world that's bigger than what you're experiencing, because then and now I believe young people wanna be what they see. Um, And if we can give them a fuller picture, they can really aspire to do great things. And so that was it. I stayed there, changed my my, um, major at at City College from business administration to early childhood, got enough units and credits to become a um, teacher in, in the child development program, Fast forward, I became executive director of that agency and Mm -hmm. began to grow our work not only around the um, direct service of child development, mental health support services, then began to expand us into a partnership with the Children's Defense Fund and the Black Student Leadership Network, worked in partner with Tony Lincoln in the early iterations of the mayor's office of children, youth and families before it was a department. Mm-hmm. And brought summer freedom schools to San Francisco, both in the Fillmore and in the Bayview, um, and, 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 and then began to do even more active public policy advocacy, both locally and nationally, um, and then went to United Way and spent 20 mm-hmm. years just continuing to drive that kind of work and really trying to, again, play the inside game. Mm-hmm. Um, that was about shifting both internal culture and policy to kind of match and not necessarily mirror, but certainly facilitate some of the outside agitation. Mm-hmm. Last thing I'll say is I got a lot of heat for choosing the inside game.
0: I want to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get into that because um, because you, you touched on I, I, I don't want to pass over low before we got before we, before we keep going to that. Direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. A low, a low alumni. Proud, so, yes, sir. Yeah, and all the low alumni um, come at me kind of foul, uh, passionately, I should say, very <laughs> spiritedly on the board of education, <laughs> and um, and that they're not they're not new to that; they're true to that, right? That's what right, they do. right, right, right. <laughs> uh, my uncle also went to law, um, and uh, he's older than you. He's um he's, he now lives in Texas. He had a career in the energy sector. You worked for nice. for several years. Nice, and um, you know, so all of these like. Like I didn't know you. You you came up under with 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 you and just your mom. Is your mom still with us? Yes, she is. She it's interesting because I told you she I'm born here because
1: she fled Mississippi. Guess where she lives now? Mississippi. <laughs> Mississippi. Where? Blue, Mississippi? blew my mind. She's uh, she is now in Diamond Head, Mississippi. Okay. Um, with my stepfather. And when when I got that call that she was making that move, it blew my mind. Like literally blew my mind because I knew the the origin, mm-hmm. and I had had my one and only experience in Macomb County. Which in that experience, ten years old, I vowed I would never go back there again. It was that bad, mm-hmm. right? So to fast because I was there to you know to see my my grandparents, and and so to fast forward and get this call. Hey son, what's up, mom? um, we're moving, we're, we're moving South. I was like, okay, where are you going? Uh, Mississippi. I'm Like, mm. wait, what? Right. And what I, what I learned as I, as I probed a little more with my mother, is how many of her generation have done that. Mm. Right. They left, you know, for all the reasons that they left, they fled. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, in their senior years are returning
2: mm-hmm.
1: and for them, it's home you know, um, for better or for worse. And it's fascinating. Um, I I will confess, I still don't get it, Mm. but I appreciate that if it's what you
0: call home, own it. I haven't experienced the South that, you know, my grandmother grew up in or that, you know, uh, you often hear about in history books and some of that is still there. Like when I I go to some of the metropolitans in the South, I feel more connected there. Like when I go to New Orleans or Atlanta or Houston, I'm like, like it feels like way more. I mean, because you know, being black in San Francisco um, and being black at Lowell, <laughs> when you were coming up, there I went to feel got- good. So you know, I didn't have all of that or whatever. But um, but I think I I I see what I see the appeal based on my travels there. Yes, but it's very like I'm coming from a place where I you know I have resources I can get around. I'm like, you know, so we went over your career broadly. And you, yep. you mentioned getting heat from the inside game. And so, when, you know, how I met you, I think the way I initially thought of you when I met you was like, uh, he knows a lot of people and he understands systems. And you had like a big job, mm-hmm. you know, like big mm-hmm. job, understand systems of a lot of people. And um, with the nonprofit space, people don't really see it. I think and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. People don't really see it with the same uh, credibility as like corporate America. But like you know, you were you were chief operating officer at United Way, right? Yes, sir. And that's a big job. In your career, have you felt like you've had to stay quiet or like massage what you want to say, um, trying to like navigate and ascend within a large organization, like quiet your blackness in order to like? Sure, sure. Does that make so, sense? So
1: it does. absolutely makes sense. And 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 the answer is. Yes, sometimes, but not in ways that I felt inhibited or prohibited from representing what needed to be represented. Because mm-hmm. most of my kind of massaging or nuancing, both the what I did or how I do it, was honestly more about tone and less about content. Right. Um, so I wasn't going to throw no tables. Like again, I'm trying to play the inside game. I need you to hear me. Mm-hmm. Right. And not be worried about me hurting you, or you know, stopping your meeting, or put, throwing the table over, right? So I was really clear about that, um, and yeah, I, I I knew that there was this expectation um, that anytime I walked into a room, there was the quick read and assessment. Candidly, between you and I, and everybody who openly see, ultimately sees this, the assessment was which kind of black are you? And I knew that walking into every room. Mm-hmm and I made conscious decision so that that wouldn't be a distraction for them, um, which kind of black I wanted them to experience,
2: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. right? Now, the the um, pushback I got from the outside, I got heat. I mean, when I first took the job, because when I was leading Audrey L. Smith Developmental, so the child development agency, right? I was still kind of, you know, recognized by Black folk and Black leaders in particular as part of the community, right? Mm-hmm. Um Soon as I took that United Way job, and I didn't start as COO, I grew into the COO role, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as I took the role, I was a sellout
2: because mm-hmm.
1: I went to work for the white man,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? I, I I went to work for that big white establishment, right? That was, you know, speaking of of um, with Chevron that you mentioned earlier, that worked with companies like Chevron to, you know, drive resources into community. And I was deemed less Black and less down and less committed to community transformation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And early on, A, I was hurt and offended, quite honestly, right? Um, and really try to rationalize it and explain it and try to make it clear, I, I, I think it's necessary, we need an outside and inside game, uh, right, and I want to make sure the dots are being connected, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but after about 10 years, I stopped trying to fight that fight. I just accepted, okay, we just have to agree to disagree I know the value of this inside game because I was in a position at United Way to do two things of significance in my view. One, I was working both literally me interfacing with and then my teams with both Fortune 500 companies and the millions and sometimes billions of dollars they were going to invest in community. I was also then interfacing with high net worth individuals um, across the spectrum, again, same thing. And they were comfortable, more, say that differently, they were confident enough to say to this black man, tell me what I should do with my money. Okay, I will. Right. <laughs> and so I gave them an agenda. And so, you know, at its high point, you know, we were investing in. Um, Black and brown communities, or not just in San Francisco, because we were five counties and in seven counties by the time um, I left, was investing over $50 million a year just on the side of the money they gave directly to us to invest. Mm-hmm. And then another hundred that they invested directly, but they invested it based on what we told them. Candidly, I determined this is the, this is the value of the inside game. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, working right, developing the, the policy agenda, ensuring that we were building coalition around the things that were important, both locally, statewide, and nationally. So, you know, I ha- but I did quite honestly have to find my own resolve that this was the right move, mm-hmm. and if it if it meant you know certain circles I wasn't deemed down, I could live with that.
0: Yeah, there is an interesting pull, like trying to be down or trying to remain down, or like some people are the um the 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 nighters of like who is uh, black author black yeah. authenticity yeah like, okay you you are you are in the you know I call I call it like I, I you know so you know sometimes I talk reckless and like I say stuff that's kind of like you know <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense right but I call like the black God like there's like a there's like a black God that no one wants to be in violation of but like if you do something like uh, take a job, like marry a white woman, like you're violating a black guy, like you're like you know, yes. you're you're an outcast from like that, the tribe or whatever, you the know. code That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, but then no one like there's no rules written down nowhere, but <laughs> well, we all are trying to like fit into not not all of us, but some of us um, are, and then we get it from our families. Like you know, when I when I wanted to pursue academics, you know, my family was like, you know why are you trying to be white? Yep. Or, or like, uh, or, or what I, it's funny thing too. Like when I meet black women, like they automatically think I date white women. It's like, Oh, like you like, you look like the type of dude that only <laughs> white women. Right. Right. <laughs> just showing all the examples of like the, there's like this thing anyway. So, uh, no, I, I feel that. So yeah, yeah. just, just to look back just
1: for a minute, cause I know you've been wanting to go there. So all my years at Lowell, hmm Right. So all four years in the hood. Oh, that's that. You talk white, you act white and you go to that white school. Right. You're not down.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So that was just all the time. And, you know, my 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 clapback was, first of all, I don't seed intellect and art and being articulate to white folk. They don't own that. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not theirs. Mm-hmm. Right. So. So I'm I'm cool with being articulate and, you know, I'm cool with being intellectual. Um, it's it's you know, I, I, it's one of my strengths, one of my superpowers and I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it for me and my people. But right. but that was that was the that was debate all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and, and you know, not not that there's anything wrong with it, but just as an aside, I ain't never dated a white woman, <laughs> you know. That's just not not my flavor. But uh-uh. but if it was, <laughs> so
0: what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it just speaks to like the perceptions that people will gather based on like, you know, like you, you mentioned, what type of black are you when you were talking about walking into the yes. room? Yes, yes. And, um, and so there is like a, a read that you're doing within a professional setting that may be of people who are white or non-black or who are also black and see you professionally and, and they're trying to make that decision or you're, you're trying to help them make that decision. And then there's, you know, the thing within the black community where that's also happening, right? And, and and it's interesting how, with I think a certain level of ascension, you know, how the black community will embrace some that have, that they probably would have like deemed acting white in another situation. Like maybe maybe Obama is like an example of that. Like, right. Like he's right. ours, like you know. That's like, <laughs> you know. But like he could have came up and he 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 would have been in the same boat we in, thinking about the same stuff. Like I I, I, spoke, I spoke to Deval Patrick once, and mm-hmm. for people that know don't know, he was the former governor of right, um, first black governor of Massachusetts. We spoke on the phone, and uh, and we talked about that a little bit. Like you know how he still does that when he goes in the rooms. One one of the things I wanted to uh, wanted to get into. Not so much related to law. I think I'm, I think I'm losing it. <laughs> I forgot what I was going to ask you.
2: Uh Uh
0: <laughs> so, so why are you trying to capture it? Let me let me just offer one uh-huh. other thing. So
1: there is still that dynamic of, you know, what what kind of black are you? And what's what's unfortunate to me is that one of the reasons it's it is it is, you know, folks like Obama get, you know, embraced. It's not until they reach this, you know, place of ascension. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's kind of merit and value in being that kind of black. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that's just, again, in my opinion, that's just really, really unfortunate because what is also true. And I don't know that we acknowledge this openly enough that whether it's Obama or you'd hear Bernard Tyson talking about it or you'd hear Duvall talking about it. One of the things I don't care what kind of black we portray ourselves as being that is still true is that we black. Mm-hmm. And when it's time to get pulled over and when it's time to get profile, it don't matter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And, and it's unfortunate that we don't we don't not just acknowledge it for acknowledgement's sake, but recognize that reality mm-hmm. that as much as we try to, you know, um, segment ourselves, who's down, who's not, who's in, who's out. We one tribe on the, for, for white folks, that's on the wrong side. So, um, we'd be better off uniting in my opinion than
0: yeah. than trying to figure out who's in, who's out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I like what you said about letting go of trying to like fit, fit that mode. And maybe cause some of that comes with age, at least it has for me, you know, I'm in my mid thirties now. And I'm just like, man, I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to have the best day possible. I'm trying to like, stay true to these values that I want to represent in the world. And, um, And I love who I am, you know. I love the upbringing that I have. I I don't think I always had that relationship to it, like you know, loving it or appreciating it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I I did remember now, thanks for giving me that time, because I was I was I was gonna bring up Malcolm X and how, and and pretty much everybody from that, like from the nation, like Muhammad Ali came out of there, right? Malcolm came out of there, and that organization really gave them all of their talking points, right? And when they went out into the world, no one really questioned their blackness and they were hella articulate. <laughs> but they but they were all this like activist, like damn America type of right, you know? <laughs> right, So that those are the those are the only examples of people that I know of that um never really got questioned. And maybe it's because of like that activist framing that they had. I, I think you're right. Um,
1: in kind of that observation. And I, I would agree with you that part of the reason, you know, as you said, blackness wasn't questioned was because of their activist posture. Mm-hmm. And so for many, and I'll just include myself in the many of us who have, have been questioned is because, you know, when I'm playing the inside game, I'm I'm not holding an activist posture
2: mm-hmm.
1: with intention, right? It's not that I can't, it's not that I don't know how, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. It's just, I'm determining this is how you play this inside game, mm-hmm. right? And it was just, there's just so many who who don't, right uh, agree with that um and i i'm just a believer that we need activists of all ilks and shapes and kinds along the entire continuum right mm-hmm. and we need them in every in in every room and outside of every room we we need right just a full on assault and attack right on this you know structural racism and injustice um and so I, I, I'm an advocate of, you know, we need somebody there and there and somebody inside that room and somebody outside that room. And and, and it's just unfortunate to me that, you know, a lot of time is spent on justifying where folks are positioning themselves mm-hmm. versus appreciating and valuing the fact that we need folks everywhere.
0: Yeah. That's that systems thinking too, that, you know, I've always appreciated about you. And and so I know you you're now no longer at United Way and you are uh, at least partially helping people evaluate and, like, for, you know, reform their systems. Like, what what, does what your current work look like right now?
1: Thank you for that. Um, so, so a couple of years ago formed what is now called Peacock Partnerships, which is my consulting practice, where I am doing, as you just said, system design and reform for organizations across sectors, um, as well as executive coaching and, and leadership development and training, and, um, and the, the, the kind of center or hub of all of that for me is two things. Um, one is for me in terms of impo- doing all of this work, this is me embodying my, um, what I call the intersection of purpose and passion. Um, I just believe that that's the, that's the intersection we all ought to be trying to get to. Right. And we all you know, are on our path and journey. And part of it is we do what we have to do until we get to do what we want to do. Right. But I believe the sooner we identify where that intersection is for us, we can then get on that path to get there. Right. Versus kind of what many of us experience is this kind of circuitous route. And I'm not faulting anybody. That's just life. And so part of what I do in my work is help organizations identify their their center of purpose and passion and help leaders identify that and then build the systems to both kind of um, um, stand that up as an organization or as a team, um, and then the systems that sustain it and perpetuate it and keep it moving. And so... I therefore am excited every day to engage with clients and partners um, because one, it's my own purpose and passion. And two, I really want to help them unlock it. Cause I believe too, and I love your opening around Monday and then the week. And then because I believe for me, it's if you can identify that intersection and then get on your path to get there, when you get there, then you're ruling the world in my view. So. Um,
0: I really appreciate that. Yeah, I wish I could afford you, man. I want, I want to get this. I want to get this. <laughs> this let, all let, of- let's talk. You know, I have some quid pro quo relationships. <laughs> you know, it's all.
1: You know, we come on. We, we're bar- we're born out of bartering, so right. you know, we, we can talk about exchange. You know, you cut my hair, I'll shine your uh, shoes. You know, so you know, it's all good. We can figure something out.
0: What what are what are some of the common issues you see, like within organizations? Like you know, when you, I'm sure you you. You have to go in and do a full assessment and then elevate what the issues are or whatever. But what are some uh, common disconnects?
1: One of the things that I'm finding common across industries and sectors so, Fortune 500, higher ed, philanthropy, small nonprofit a common, a couple of common themes. One is there is surprisingly to me, an inability on the part of many leaders to lead and engage in what I call courageous conversations. Courageous conversations are about ideas challenging other ideas in order to get to the best solution. Most of our conversations begin with a notion and a premise of winning and losing. Mm -hmm. My idea better than your idea. Mm -hmm. whether it's because of my position or just I think I'm smarter than you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so many teams, therefore, never really have authentic, open um, and engaging conversations that are hard to have, because for many of us, you know, we embed our own self-worth and value in our ideas. And so when we put them on the table and someone steps on it, we feel personally stepped on. Mm -hmm. Right. I'll never forget. It's probably 25 years ago. I was in a meeting actually at McKinsey and um, I was a guest there, part of this team. Um, and I'll never forget the leader of the, of the team came in, we sat down and he said to everyone in the room, um, just as a reminder, you know, our premise here at McKinsey, we are soft on people and hard on ideas. So as we begin to engage in this discussion, it's not about title, um, it's not about taking things personally, we wanna leave this room with the best solutions to the issues we're putting on the table. And I will tell you, Stefan, that was the most intense 90 minute meeting I have ever been in in my professional life. You know, it it felt like, you know, uh, a, a 15 round title fight. Cause it was, every idea was questioned and pushed on and challenged, nobody got offended. Nobody was storming out of the room. Nobody was, you know, throwing in a towel. Nobody was, you know, um, using their power to say, no, it's gonna go my way. It was was all about the best idea, Mm -hmm. the best solution, right? Mm -hmm. And I literally came out of that room going, whew, man, that was tough. And yet it was powerful. And so I remember leaving that going, that's what, that's what most teams are missing. And quite honestly, I've never experienced one other team that had that kind of um, environment. And so part of what I'm supporting people is have that conversation. And it begins with having a level of confidence in your own person, in your own voice, and in your own perspective, because then you're able to confidently put it on the table and not have your feelings go with it. Mm-hmm. Right. And because you're also clear on, on the, the, the the goal. right? So that's really common. The other thing that's really common, again, that I'm experiencing, I have experienced across sectors is accountability or the lack thereof runs rampant, right? Um, just runs rampant. Um, folks are not held accountable. Um, and, you know, at, at all levels of organizations and, you know, and they wonder why we're not high-performing, you know, when you begin to, to to kind of study and and appreciate some of the quote-unquote leadership gurus and those that have studied organizations, you know, Jim Collins talks about right people in right seats doing the right actions consistently, right? Well, what happens is, A, we don't get the right people in right seats because we don't have the right filters to bring in the right people. We then don't put them in the right seats, and then we don't even hold them accountable, Right. So it's just a recipe. Right. For challenges. And then when you have huge bureaucracies like schools and school districts and right, it just gets lost in there. And, and you know, you don't have high performing organizations. So anyway, um, you know, those are probably the two biggest things. There isn't the there aren't the courageous conversations and there isn't kind of the consistent
0: accountability that helps organizations and teams thrive. Yeah, the accountability thing. I was, you know, being on the school board. And we have a lot of uh, institutional barriers that prevent accountability, like around, you know, teacher tenure or um, really like subjective views on what is relevant to success or not relevant, like people liking each other or falling out. So your job, you know, it's like, or I should say, you know, I want to give a bit of, the only caveat I would give is that maybe not, I don't understand the evaluation enough to not read it that way. You know what I'm saying? Because like, like, this looks like you just like the person because when I, when I asked for the, how it was determined or what we're hiring around or why somebody isn't being fired over the perpetual under like performance of, of, of this group or like, you know what? So it's, you know, it's very odd, uh, interesting, and it's it's not just in the school board. Like uh, the 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 ability to be courageous and to help people accountable when you're in leadership. You know, like when I was running Mission Bit, like you know, and I've had to fire people or like write people up, and and it, you know, it's it's like it's not comfortable. No, but, but I'm doing it, and then just the transparency of it is. Like really wanting it, and not knowing how to initiate it for myself. Yeah, because because uh, you know just being completely open. Like I'm like, all right, I could ask my staff to review me, but I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then and then I and, I and I'm like chasing my board for an evaluation, and whenever they write that's not aligned with how I feel, I'm like I'm like I'm I'm you know defending it. You know, right. so. Right. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So I get that. I get that. Yeah, there's this again, all of us need to kind of
1: find our space and place of confidence where we welcome feedback, where Mm -hmm. we welcome. Right. um, Being checked, so to speak. Um, I was just coaching just a couple of weeks ago, um, a senior manager in a higher ed institution, and she's got a team member who has been low performing. For a while, right? By her own admission, she's right? she's been struggling for a long time, and so I said, "So, where's the accountability?" Well, I, you know, I talked to her and I've I've tried to coach her. I said, "Yeah, the coaching is good, but where's the accountability?" Because ultimately, she needs to deliver or not, and she needs to be held accountable for that, right? Um, yeah, you're right. I said, "So, so here's a, a, another foundational piece I would." invite you to appreciate and understand. You are not doing your team or the organization, rather let me say that differently, you are doing your team and organization a disservice when you hold on to, coddle and protect a known low performer. You say you're down for the company, down for the team, down for the organization, and you do that, that's contradictory. Secondly, you're actually not, you're doing her a disservice. Because what her behavior says is one of two things. One, she can't or she doesn't want to. But in either case, she's not. Which means potentially she's just in the wrong place. And you're doing her a disservice in keeping her here. You need to set her free to go and find her intersection of purpose and passion so she can be about being her best self Mm -hmm. because clearly she can't be her best self here. And that's okay, right? That's not being critical of her. It just, it doesn't fit, doesn't work. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: She was like, oh. So I said, yeah, you need need to set her free. Mm
2: -hmm. Because that
1: was always the conversation I had with folks when it was time to fire them, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? I'm I'm setting you free. I really want you to be successful. It's just clear you can't be successful here for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm -hmm. Some is ours, some is yours. But we are where we are, and what I encourage you to do is again find that intersection and be about being your best self, and find where that works for you. You like a you like a Harriet Tubman out in these streets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a liberate you. I'm a liberate you. That's it. That, that's what's up because this isn't working for you,
2: mm-hmm. and it's
1: certainly not working for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because it was actually the way this is twig kind of off subject, but so I spent. Four years in the Air Force Reserves. I did, you know, um, um, you know, I, my intent was to go active duty. That didn't work out. So I went reserves. And it was clear to me after I did basic training and tech school, et cetera, after about a year of doing my weekend warrior thing, that it just didn't work for me. Hmm. And so I literally walked into the colonel's office. Can we talk? Sure. Sure. Airman, sit down. So said, so, sir, with all due respect, this isn't working for me, which means I'm not working for you, and neither of us are getting value out of this. So, if there is a path, right, to again liberate me, mm-hmm. I believe we both win if we do that. And amazingly, he agreed. Put me in this status that that where I didn't have to report anymore. Um, I became temporarily inactive. I think was 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 the official status. And then mm-hmm. six years later, when my kind of time was, was up. I got this honorable discharge and I was done. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and again, I just think that that, that kind of liberation, dude, you have to know, I know, you know, cause you experience it. How mm. many people are trapped in jobs that are just not right for them.
0: And I want to be about setting people free. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you are. <laughs> yes. And you are. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's really the concept behind uh, what I was thinking about, like putting the show together, you know, I wanted to make it for the people that hate their jobs and then that they, they can see people that love what they do and it can yes. spark some type of like yes. move for them. But I think, in, you know, like based on the interest of the people that are or at least that are guests, the, the people that like what they do, I think it's really only for people that like what they do. Like the audience is people that like what they do because mm-hmm. they appreciate that and other people and the folks that, don't like what what they do for this is this is a broad stroke. It could be a lot sure. of different reasons, sure. either, but um, there is like there is a tendency for in, inaction. Like you don't like what you do, so you're staying. So then, like, why would you tap into a source about leaving if you're conditioned to stay? That's right. You know? It's like yes. it's like a code. Like so, they have to be acted upon. And uh, like I, I had a cousin who was a marine, and he did some work with the railroads after he left the service
2: uh-huh.
0: and, and you, and he was like, yeah, I fire somebody every week. And I was like, damn, why are you so mean? <laughs> and he's like, they fired themselves. <laughs> and then that stuck with me. I was like, you fire yourself, <laughs> you know, like yes. you fire yourself.
2: Yes, you know? absolutely. Like, absolutely.
0: Donald Trump just fired himself,
2: you know?
1: <laughs> yes. He actually had every opportunity to win uh-huh. and he fired himself. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Um and 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 you're right in, in in terms of, you know, who's who might be drawn then to, you know, an, an audience of 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 your your program. And and so trying to part of what I've been thinking a lot about is how to reach that next kind of, you know, if this is the the circle, right? How to reach that next ring, right? Where they're stuck, but they had, you know, they're kind of peeking over the fence, right? Um, they have interests, but they feel stuck, right? Um, that's, that's kind of the space that, I mean, I certainly wanna work in the center of the, of the circle, absolutely, and I want that next ring of folks who have really great potential, really great capacity, and they feel stuck. Um, and my observation um, is that it's one part kind of lack of confidence in themselves and their agency um, and then and then sometimes it is very fundamentally about um, their financial well-being, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they took that role and job early on because they needed to, and then they start making a little more and making a little more. And now they've got a lifestyle that's dependent upon that, and they're fearful of taking a leap anywhere else. And 20 years later, they're going, I'm still here. It's not what I really love doing, but... You know, pays the mortgage, and you know, sends my kids to school, and uh, and and I get that. So I'm and not at all being critical of it. I just believe there's more,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that one isn't a compromise
0: of the other. We're coming to the top of the hour. I have yes, a rapid sir. fire section. Um, I, I want to riff on that some more because like it's so important, and I hope that what we're gonna put on the screen a way to get a hold of you. Uh okay. do you want to list it out now? Do you what do you what do you how do you how do people contact you to learn more about? Absolutely. So so best way
1: to learn more about is www.pecockpartnerships.com. So that's cool. the website. Um and yeah, that's the best way to to kind of track me down.
0: Great. All right. So rapid fire, are you ready? Yes. Go. Do you meditate? Yes. What personal weakness can you forgive in someone? Lack of empathy. What's one book you would recommend?
1: That's only tough because there are so many. Um, one that I would recommend is, is, is it, it is born out of my my faith foundation. It's called Purpose Driven Life.
0: That's Warren, right? Yes. Do you have a motto? Be you. Be great.
1: It's not about comparing yourself to others. We have a wrong scheme, I would argue. It's about greatness compared to other people, other things, other organizations. That's a measure. It's not the measure. I believe if you're being your best self, then
0: that's your ability to be you and be great. Last and final question. Your house is on fire. The family and the pets are out. What's three, three, three things you grab? <laughs> Keys to the car, my
1: my wedding picture of me and Hydra, and my bicycle. We didn't
0: get into the L.A. trip. I, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> there's, so <much laughs> That's we, right. there's so many That's depths right. and avenues that I just happen to know more about Eric because watching his, watching his life. We didn't get into your marriage or your kids or anything. Right. Right. Um, but that is the top of our hour. <laughs> this appreciate it, Eric McDonald. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you for doing Cook on Monday morning. Appreciate you holding this space. Good to be with you. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday morning. At Cook on Monday morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you change your year, could change your life. I'd like to thank Mr. McDonald again for taking the time to join me uh, for this week's episode. It was really great to go back and forth with him, hear about his experience building a career, uh, thinking about how he thinks about race, how, how he's navigated race, and the type of uh, professional support he's given to people from all different backgrounds to Uh, ensure that teams are strong and and are driving impact and and we're all holding ourselves accountable. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. I hope you learned a lot. Um, uh, Thank you again for listening and thank you for subscribing. Please do so if you haven't already. I'm grateful for your support. Uh, Please share the podcast with a friend. Also help us grow this community of doers. Please take a minute to also uh, rate and review the podcast on Apple Leave a comment on YouTube. It really helps people hear about and find what we're doing here. If you're interested in starting your own podcast, I wrote an article. It's called How to Start a Podcast During the Pandemic. You can check the article in the description box if you want to, uh, you know, see how I started this one, the equipment we use, some book recommendations that would be helpful to consider. Check that out when you get a chance. Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. We work in partnership to create solutions that drive impact uh, we build strategic partnerships between businesses and government we recruit diversity talented to high impact roles and we help companies drive impact in the places where they do business if you'd like to learn more about that feel free to email me info stevoncook.com. i'd like to thank the people that make our podcast possible our videographer david topete thank you david our copy editors Fernando Ocico-Marquez, and Devin Sketchinger. Thank you both also. I get up every morning with the intention to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. Uh, You are our teachers, garbage collectors, uh, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, fire workers, police officers, EMT workers, bus drivers, and nurses. Uh, You are our employers, the people helping create jobs and keeping our economy growing. You are our gig workers, uh, stocking our sales, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit, Harlem, Brooklyn, uh, shout out to all of our listeners also know on the continent and around the world, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Jamaica, Kenya, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. This message is touching the world and will continue to do so because of you. Until we meet again, peace, peace, and be out.